and welcome to The Sacred, the podcast which gets underneath our public debates to the people and the principles driving them. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield, and I want to live in a world where we are seeking to understand even the people that we disagree with. And my goodness, can we find a lot of things to disagree about? Every episode, I talk to someone who has some kind of public voice or public platform to try and get to their deep values and understand their story, really to get a sense of what's got them to where they are now. I talk to people from all different tribes, conservatives and liberals, atheists atheists and Christians, Sikhs, Jews, Baha'is, Muslims, whoever else I can find, people who hold wildly different views on what gender is and what we should do after Brexit and how we should think about race and everything else. I am trying to increase my empathy and contribute to a common life not marked by some kind of fake peace where we all pretend we're the same or that we all agree, but by a baseline of respect and empathy, and if we can't get that far, at least curiosity. In this episode, I spoke to Yoram Hazoni. Yoram is a philosopher, political theorist, and Bible scholar who lives in Israel with his wife and nine children. He's written books including The Virtue of Nationalism and Conservatism, A Rediscovery. We spoke about his adult conversion to Orthodox Judaism, why he thinks only conservatism can save democracy, and why he thinks nationalism and colonialism are opposites. There are some reflections from me at the end, and I really hope you enjoy listening. Yoram, I am going to uh, characteristically try and go deep fast. There is no asking you what you had for breakfast. There is no kind of warming up. Um, because I want to ask you what is sacred to you. And this is to give you some, This is, you can take it wherever you like, but if you want some kind of guardrails or guide rails, it doesn't necessarily have to be religious, but it can be. It is really about your deep principles. The things that if someone give you, gave you money to give up, you would feel an ick reaction. You know, you would feel <laughs> compromised. You would feel like something has been transgressed. And people have said all manner of different things. Uh, we probably don't know what's sacred to us, but I hope it is a generative question uh, to give you a sort of slightly different kind of self-reflection. What bubbled up for you about what is sacred to you? Well, when, when I think of what, what is sacred, I, I begin by thinking about my, uh, my learning from my father uh, growing up from from the time I was a small child, and there there are many things that are that we inherit from our our parents, whether we are aware of it or not. And I, I inherited from from my my father first first of all a uh, a very powerful connection to uh, to the Jewish people to the Jewish story. Uh, to the, the the state of Israel as uh, as an expression of of uh, the Jewish story, and as I got older, this uh, connection became an intellectual and spiritual uh, adventure and 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 exploration. I I, I was I think uh, in high school. I, I did not grow up in in a uh, in an observant uh, Jewish family. I grew up in a you know a liberal town, a college town, Princeton, New Jersey, 
uh, where there there was very very little talk about uh, tradition, scripture, God. Uh, all of these things were were kind of you know beyond the pale. And as I uh, as I got older, I uh, tra- I, I pulled on 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 these threads of my my connection to uh, to the Jews as a people to try to understand uh, what my ancestors had stood for and what they had believed, and uh, that led to Torah st- study, and that led to uh, to trying to understand the God of Israel, and uh, so at at this point I'm. I'm 58 years old. It's a, this is this is all a long time ago. Uh, my wife and I are Orthodox Jews. We, we we live in the kind of community where there there are 15 different you know synagogues literally in in the neighborhood uh, in Jerusalem, and uh, the the things that are sacred to me as as an adult and as a uh, as a scholar and a teacher grew out of those original things as as a child. So. Uh, at, at this point, the Sabbath is sacred. Our uh, our scriptures are sacred. Uh, the the relationship my 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 relationship to uh, to God and His commandments is sacred. And uh, and we have a family in which we we teach these 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 things. Not every child, um, you know, com- uh, comes out. Thinking what their parents think, thank God. Uh, but uh, w- we do provide a framework, and and that feeling of sacredness is is I think handed down. Mm, I really want to come back to that, and particularly the pull towards from a kind of um, childhood when your uh, identity was very Jewish, but actually religious practice wasn't particularly handed down because um, lots of people go in the other direction. Um, and I'm always interested in that trajectory. But I just want to stay a little bit on the childhood because you were you were born in Israel, right? How much time did you spend going back and forth? How mu- And how do you think that kind of, do you feel like you had to, a kind of two-culture childhood or did you feel strongly American and someone who visited Israel? I was a year old uh, when when my my father began teaching in Princeton, and uh, and my wife and I uh, moved back to Israel um, after you know after college. I went back and forth some during graduate school, but uh, so mostly I I grew up in the United States, but I was growing up in in a in a Jewish Israeli home, and uh, so, so there there certainly were two different cultures. And uh, people actually asked me, you know, the, w- w- I, I was on an, uh, a Jewish podcast a few days ago uh, with uh, an Israeli professor, and he said, "What, well, you know, wh- why, why do you write about ang- the Anglo-American tradition? You know, what does that, what does that have to do with us?" And uh, uh, it it has it certainly has a lot to do with me, but I I also think that there's uh, there there is a um, a, a very deep connection between the uh, the English uh, tradition, the Anglo-American tradition, and the Jewish tradition. It's it's not you know it's not every every nation in the world where you know you can uh, you know start start picking up old books and uh, and they're they're filled to the brim from end to end with uh, commentary and discussion about old Jewish books. 
and this is this is not only the you know the Hebrew Bible. It's you know there there are figures in English history who are uh, who are. Uh, extraordinarily well versed in uh, the Talmudic and the rabbinic tradition, and yet they're you know they're major political figures in England. So I, I, uh, I've always felt uh, a pull towards uh, towards England as as a close as a close family relation. Where did, if you don't mind me asking, where did your parents move to Israel from? And do you do you have grand did you have grandparents in Israel at the time? Uh, my father and mother were were both born in Israel, so this is this is in uh, in British Mandatory Palestine before the uh, declaration of the state. And uh, so my my mother's parents came from uh, from uh, Poland uh, in the early 1930s. My father's parents came from uh, from Ukraine in the uh, late 1920s, uh, wow. and. Um, uh, Yes, that's a long, uh, a long time ago, and it, it's it's a long time ago, and it's still it's still alive in all sorts of ways. Yeah, um, and you uh, have spoken so much about the influence of your dad on your thought, um, and I the ca- the categories are, are kind of slightly confusing uh, because we all call political parties different things in different nations, don't we? So it's hard to kind of locate ourselves. But your dad was effectively a kind of conservative vision of the world, but you also use this phrase labor. Help me understand what his kind of political philosophy was that you were imbibing oh, sure. when you were growing up. Well, um, you know, I, somebody, uh, I, I was ju- just uh, visiting London and, and was handed a book about, uh, uh, about blue labor. And, uh, yes. and, you know, which, which is an expression that's, that, that's new to me, but it's actually very familiar from, uh, from my childhood. So my, the, the, the strongest uh, the strongest political party in uh, in pre-state Israel and and in Israel in in the early decades was uh, the Labour Party, um, headed for most of that time by David Ben Gurion. And uh, you know, peop- there are many people today who who they look at that and they think, you know, oh, that's the left; they must be liberals. <laughs> and you know, there's there was pretty much not a single Liberal bone in David Ben Gurion's, uh, uh, you know, uh, structure of ideas. Uh, he 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 and his his friends, um, his his colleagues, all of the founders of this this Israeli labor movement. Um, they they had been born into uh, Orthodox Jewish Eastern European homes, and they uh, they they gave up on uh, on much of much of the observance. But maintained the the framework of uh, the uh, the Jewish story being told in the Bible, uh, the, uh, the 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 Bible being the, the the foundation for all all Jewish ideas and values. Uh, so that included an attachment to the Jewish people or the Jewish nation, and especially the idea of the return of the Jewish exiles, uh, which into which they they devoted their lives. This you know this this was in a in a, a period before World War One, uh, immediately after World War One, in, in which Jews were were free to to um, to uh, leave Europe and go to the United States or or to Britain uh, up until the mid nineteen uh, twenties, and so those few who chose to go to 
to the land of Israel to take up, you know, the the the, the challenge of the British mandate of trying to establish, uh, reestablish a Jewish homeland. These are people who, um, who whose economics is on uh, is on the left. You know, and are t- they're talking about uh, you know, uh, economics based on the vision of the prophets and concern for the the widow and the orphan, but their uh, their uh, politics is framed both by nationalism, by the which is to say the the aim of establishing an independent Jewish state, which will be able to chart its own its own independent course, and in addition, there's also a uh, a conservatism because. Uh, because they they're so concerned to uh, pass on the the heritage of uh, of the Jewish Bible and uh, the, the the Jewish story and and Jewish history, these things are 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 so central to what they want to see their their children and their country about that you know that it it crosses over into a, you know into a very very staunch conservatism uh, on on a number of issues. Yeah, I think it is. We'll talk more about this, and I might actually get you to do some definitions, which I never do, just because all of this language is so slippery, isn't it? And the left-right binary, I think, has probably always been unhelpful, but is increasingly unhelpful. And I find the more I talk to particularly people of faith, that blue Labour or red Tory or post-liberal or sense in which it's, things are being pulled from the both sides of this perceived binary. Um, comes up again and again. And I think it's a reason why a lot of people feel politically homeless, actually, that the the parties have forced quite artificial boxes in a lot of our nations. But I want to keep following the thread of your story for a, a bit longer, because you grew up in this kind of, uh, as you've explained, kind of um, maybe blue labor, uh, very kind of Jewish nationalist household, went to Princeton it sounds like you didn't really rebel against that at all, that your uh, that those political intuitions just deepened. Is that right? You didn't do the kick against your parents thing that lots of us do. No, I really, I really didn't. And, you know, now, now that I've, my, my wife and I have, have uh, nine children and uh, uh, seven of them are, are, are done with being teenagers and two more are, are teenagers. And uh, now that I've, you know, I've had this experience. I've, I've I've come to understand that there are some children who are just loyalists, and um, you know, they they from a very young age they uh, they, they they're happy in uh, in in um, building up the framework that they got from their parents, and their children who. Uh, who, for whom that's more more difficult. I'm not saying that they're that they're disloyal, but they 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 feel that they need to they have to build something that that is is their own and you know both of these can end up being extremely productive and happy or extremely unhappy uh, but i was very very i was definitely a loyalist i was very happy to um uh to to learn from my father um but you know as i as as i mentioned he, our our home was was not an observant home and we talked about politics all the time but my father is a physicist and uh, and he you know he didn't read books and you know in magazines about you know politics or political theory he just had you know strong opinions uh, the way the way pretty much all every Israeli almost does and um, so so the there is an extension there, there is a certain um, 
uh, I, I don't know if I would, I wouldn't call it a rebellion, but I, but I don't live my life the way that my father lived his life. And my wife and I, uh, we, we returned to Israel. My father had, had moved to America and uh, always talked about returning to Israel, but he didn't. And so, so we live in Israel and, uh, and, and uh, we adopted the, uh, the orthodoxy of my aunt and uncle. Um, and I, th- I think this happens a, a great deal to, uh, to young people of a loyalist bent that they they turn to aunts and uncles to grandparents uh to you know to 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 other beloved family members or community members to uh, to help fill out a worldview that is uh, not you know not necessarily complete in 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 the home in which they were growing up mm. i want to ask you a question and i tried asking rabbi sachs the late and wonderful Rabbi Sachs this question, and he looked at me with a very sardonic raised eyebrow um, and said, hmm, people don't really ask those kind of questions in my community. So please uh, forgive me if it's intrusive, but I want to get a, I'm really interested in conversion or renewal or what it is that draws people into um, religious practice or religious identity, either from a kind of completely different place or from a, as you had a kind of frame. And I'd love to hear if you're willing, and again, it's hard for academics, the sort of emotional and spiritual pull. What was it that was going on in you when you and maybe your wife at the same time were like, no, actually, we do want to be reading scripture. We do want to be praying. We do want to be observing the Sabbath. What do you think you were following? Well, there, there's, a, there's both a push and a pull. Uh, I, I, th- I think that... Um, Regardless of uh, of how uh, how people who become uh, who become religious uh, con- uh, converts or pen- penitents pe- pe- people who become who become more religious become more pious, I to me it seems that that uh, regardless of the particular thing that that is moving them, that there's always a strong a powerful sense of of homecoming. And uh, an emotional homecoming, like uh, uh, like y- y- you felt a tension because you were in the wrong place, and then you move into the the right place. Sometimes, sometimes it it happens quickly, and sometimes it happens over many many years. And that feeling of homecoming, it it, it can be just overwhelming. The, it, it, it's a feeling that that you didn't. Uh, you, you 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 weren't in in the right place in the world, and 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 you uh, you you found your place. Okay, so that that's sort of the in the most abstract sense. Let let me try to make it a little a little bit more particular. Um, the 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 feeling of um, being eighteen or twenty and coming into uh, your your intellectual and emotional strength is often today, I mean, probably all through history to a certain degree, but especially today is often accompanied by a, uh, by a rootlessness uh, people, people feel, feel that they didn't get much of an inheritance from their families. Um, that, or they didn't have extended families because families are so small. So, so they don't even know what that would be like. 
uh, and the um, and then the, the the experience of university is 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 often you know, cu- cutting them off from whatever, you know, from the families and communities that they grew up with, whatever they had, ends up being cu- kind of cut off the moment that you're with all these young people at college. And and there really isn't much guidance from, you know, from uh, adults. The fact, you know, you go to classes sometimes and hear professors, but mostly young people are living in a society of people that's almost exclusively people their own age. And the the thing that is most characteristic of that university society is that it is not a society of, that is conserving anything. It doesn't, it doesn't inherit and transmit. There are very few, um, very few of the young people you meet in university have a, a, a firm grasp of some kind of uh, religious uh, or, or political tradition, uh, which they are then capable of uh, handing to people around them. And so, um, so I, I get I, you know I talked about this general feeling of homecoming, which which pulls you. But the push is that if if you're at all sensitive to um, uh, to spiritual things, which everybody is to some degree or another, then you know you look at the uh, at the at the you know the 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 drinking and the uh, sexual pursuits. You know, which can be very, very uh, entertaining and satisfying for you know for for a brief time, but when 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 you look at this, you say, you know, is it this is 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 this really what what life is about? Uh, if you're if you're Jewish, then you might also ask yourself something like, well, you know, so so many of my uh, my ancestors uh, devoted themselves. Uh, at great risk and uh, and in the face of of, uh, of of persecution and suffering to other things, what would they have thought of me here now? And uh, the, the answer is pretty clear: is that although they they probably would have been somewhat disappointed that that you know that that's that's all that you know that their 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 efforts came to. And uh, when when I was eighteen, I started visiting Orthodox communities. And uh, at that point, these you know these these different things came together. The the feeling that uh, no, my my ancestors really weren't that foolish. They had they had a point of view that was worth considering, and I very much wanted to learn that point of view. And the more I learned that point of view, the more I felt this feeling of homecoming that I began with. Yeah, I um. I think we'll come back to this at the end, but I have a sense that that is happening to a lot of people right now. The sense of both kind of need for a framework (laughs) and a need for a sense of homecoming and not knowing where to look. I think it's very distinctive of our kind of spiritual and um, social moment. But I want to pick up the thread about what we owe generationally, because it feels very central to your definition of conservatism. And I hear it in your definition much more clearly than in many public understandings of conservatism. Could you just unpack this sense of conserving and transmitting things as what you mean by it? So let let me explain how I'm using it Uh, in, you know, in in my books and in and, and when I teach people, so let, let's start with liberalism. Um, to, to make it very simple, a liberal is somebody who thinks that you, that you understand the you have what you need to understand the political world, 
if you approach it from the perspective of, uh, from the assumption first that human beings are are all by nature free and equal, and second that uh, human beings undertake moral and political obligation by choice, by consent. That that if you need to agree in order to uh, to be obligated. And from there, you know, the, 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 you get political ideas like, you know, the, the, the purpose of this, the state is to defend those uh, liberties and equalities that are ours by nature. Now, there, there are many different kinds of liberals. There's progressive liberals and classical liberals and libertarians, but all of them uh, begin with the assumptions that I just described about the free and equal individual and consent. Conservatives may and often do care a great deal about uh, uh, about individual liberties, but they begin their political view from a different, a very different place. Conservatives begin um, with uh, with an actual nation or an actual uh, religion, an actual um, uh, community, and the question that they ask is. What would I have to do? What would we have to do if we were going to take what's what is good about this already existing community that I've inherited, that I didn't create? I I was born into it, or or maybe I I moved into it as an adult, but still I didn't create it. So what would I have to do in order to uh, see that that that's what what's good and healthy and sound about it is propagated and continued? into future generations. Now, the moment that you begin from that spot, then you, you have to ask questions that, uh, that liberals rarely ask. Questions like, um, is, is, you know, is, there, is there a need for boundaries? How does inheritance work? Um, is, uh, does, do we have to honor everything that comes from the past or just some things? And if we want to repair and improve instead of just preserving things, because all things, human things run down, if we want to repair and improve, then how would we, would we go about doing that? So then you get to, to words like uh, restoration, um, and a restoration is is always you know some kind of some kind of a repentance. It's saying we've we've gone off the track and we need to go back to certain things that, that, that used to work. Now, see, liberals and conservatives, there can be uh, overlap and, and, and influence and collaboration. But I think fundamentally, these are, uh, th- th- these are very different views. And if you are, um, uh, if you're strictly liberal, if you really stick to thinking that, uh, that the important thing is um, is that everybody be free and equal and exercise their choice. Then you're raised. That means you're raised both in school and by your parents by people who are implicitly saying you don't need anything but yourself. J- just think for yourself. Whatever makes you happy. Yeah. I, by the way, I grew up like this too. Most people do now. What parents say? Whatever. Whatever makes you happy. Think for yourself. And that's a noble thing to want to build up the child. But on the other hand, if, if all, that's all that you hear, then uh, honoring anything inherited from the past becomes uh, very difficult. And uh, the, the, uh, the result for a great many people, I think people are beginning to understand this now, is that 
the gift of being able to choose anything you want without guardrails, just whatever you think is it's, 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 it's not entire, it's not entirely a gift for a great many people. Um, it's, it, they say, but how would I know? How could I possibly choose? And it becomes paralyzing. And very, very unusual historically, right? Because most societies have had kind of initiation rites and rituals and a sort of fairly substantial planned way in which they hand children a vision of what the good life is, which they can then accept or reject. But the liberal vision, I think what I'm hearing from you is the, is, is, its entirety is individual freedom, which again, and you're very clear on your, this book, which I really appreciated, is a really good thing. And there have been many, many gifts of kind of that liberal political inheritance post the Second World War. Um, I want to, your argument seems to imply that the kind of results of this under-focus on what we can serve from the past and how we transmit it to the future has led to what your your kind of shorthand for it is woke neo-Marxism. And I want to kind of, one, get you to define that. And two, if I may, ask if there is an, an alternative way of talking about it. Um, because I know there will be people listening who, that, that immediately makes them want to turn off. Um, they are more convinced of the kind of importance and the justice imperative, which some of them might get from biblical sources, um, of a kind of what we've seen in the last few years, of a, a, a kind of uptick in under, uh, of pr- the, pr- the kind of visibility of group identities and dy- dynamics of power between group identities and... Um, I just wanted to name that because I think what you're saying about it is very interesting and its relationship with conservatism, but I want you to unpack it within those frames. Does that make sense? Or am I asking too much and being quite annoying? That's fine. um, There is a chapter in my book, which, uh, which is, which is about Marxism and, and the role that it's playing in public life right now. And, and I, I do my best uh, to try to uh, not just to criticize, but to, uh, to, to show the strength, the the attractive power of uh, of, of Marxism in its its various forms, and including the you know the uh, the, the current forms, uh, because I I don't I don't think that there's sufficient understanding of this often uh, among conservatives. The Marxist framework begins by um, by critiquing you know, what, what um, Marx and his comrades called the, called bourgeois ideas or bourgeois society. Uh, today we call it liberal society or liberal ideas. And the, 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 the principal criticism is that liberalism, because it begins with the freedom of the individual, um, and, you know, then individuals are supposedly come to some big agreement and that's where the state comes from, because of this emphasis on the individual and individual choice, Marx says that uh, that a, a realistic understanding of society becomes impossible because that's not what human beings are empirically like. Empirically, and and this this I I, I think is a very very strong point. Empirically, human beings are they're not born free and equal. Every human being is is born into something. Uh, into a family, into into a, a tribe, into a nation, into a religion, 
and and the uh, human beings have uh, group loyalties. They're 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 sticky. They they they're they're powerfully um, they're powerfully committed to many things that are inherited. Now they, they they may later rebel and make adjustments, but the the way we begin our lives is uh, is as uh, is not as free and equal individuals, but as uh, individuals who are not at all equal to our you know our parents and our, our older family members, and we're very not very free. Uh, you know, you 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 try as a you, I have a three-year-old grandson who's who's in my house a lot, and he's you know he wants to be free, but he's not. You know, he doesn't get to do what he wants, and um, and so Mark says, "Look, this is this is completely misleading. This is not what human beings are like. Let's talk about what they're actually like." And from from the beginning of saying, "Look, human beings are sticky, and they they form cohesive collectives throughout their lives. Even if they they leave and join a different one, they still always end up being part of some kind of some or another cohesive collective." And and the and he points out that that our understanding of moral and political obligation is inherited through the common sense of the collective. In in fact, it, now. Marx sees this mostly as being not o- not only but largely as being something very sinister. Um, he sees uh, the power relations as uh, among groups as necessarily leading to the exploitation of all the weaker groups by whatever the strongest group is. And uh, and part, one of one of the important tools that he develops is this concept of of a ruling ideology, which later. Ends up being called false consciousness, which is the 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 fact that strong groups, a, a strong group, when they, they they develop ideas that help them understand, you know, why they're right, um, and uh, it, it's not in, it's not hypocritical; it's natural. They just that that's the way the human mind works. But then they teach the the worldview to of of why they're right to weaker groups. Um, and and that that creates kind of like a a, a a a possibility of a mental oppression in addition to uh, other kinds of oppression and exploitation. Now I think all of these phenomena are 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 real, and and it makes and the the reason that you know when when you go to university and you you have a good Marxist professor, so many students are attracted to them, is is because of the fact that you get this feeling that they're talking they're talking about real things. They've seen something. Right. That 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 the, all the liberal teachers are just pretending it doesn't exist. Actually they, they can't see it at all. And so all of that is that, that's important and it uh, it allows you it, it it can in a good way it can sensitize you to exploitation and and to oppression and to false consciousness and all of these things can be Useful. The, the the I think the place that Marxism goes badly wrong is in the assertion in Marx's assertion that every every strong group necessarily has to uh, exploit and oppress the weaker groups in uh, within reach, and so here here's where you know a conservative will you know has to break. With Marxists, I mean, certainly reading the Bible, you, I, I mean, you, you can easily see uh, these kinds of dynamics of uh, of uh, oppression and exploitation. But conservatives 
uh, will say that Marx's answer, his answer is you have to destroy the ruling, you have to destroy the ruling group, you have to destroy the ruling ideology. The only answer is revolution. And, uh, and, <laughs> and, and uh, that implies, although, you know, Marx is kind of a utopian when he talks about the future, but uh, Marxists always imply that there's going to be something better afterwards, that, you know, when their group takes power, then they're not going to be the oppressors. But conservatives say that's ridiculous. Um, the, every revolution creates, you know, c- creates new oppression. And it, the, the, uh, the way to, to reach the, the most just society is, is not through constant revolution, but through um, the, uh, the inculcation of a, a, a belief in the strong groups in society that they owe things to the weaker groups, that they can get along with the weaker groups, uh, that, uh, that the stability of society is, is based on, a, uh, on a, a kind of a negotiation which is ongoing uh, between, among the various groups so that, um, that each, each group can, uh, can come to feel that it, it is honored, uh, that it has a place, uh, that it is, it is benefiting. Now, now I, I, I'm not saying, I'm not using the word equality here because stronger groups are always going to benefit in a disproportionate way to, to, to weaker groups. But that, that doesn't mean that it's impossible to, uh, to seek and attain uh, a greater measure of uh, of justice without uh, the destruction of the revolution, uh, w- which returns us all to barbarism. Mm. I think the shorthand that I'm coming up with in my head is that those with a conservative bent are broadly posit- more positive about the past and more negative about the future. And those with a more liberal slash Marxist bent are more negative about the past and more positive about the future. And I think some of that's just temperamental, right? It's like not just political philosophy. It might just be your personality coming through in, in what you think. Um, I'm trying to think what a guest that I've had on formally would ask you if, if they were asking an honest question. And I think if we if we go back to my very budget non academic rubric of uh positivity and negativity towards the past and the future as a shorthand that it is easier for those who at least their ancestors or their kind of people who share their group identity had a much harder time in the past people of color gay people women frankly um it's it's harder for them to feel as positive about the legacy of what is passed on and to think maybe, well, surely we can do better than that. There must be something better in the future. And the kind of conservative vision that you've laid out of what, yes, that's, that yes, that, yeah, yes, that's tempting, but it won't happen. What needs to happen is the strong groups take the responsibility for justice, essentially, how does that happen? Because I think a lot of what's driving this movement, particularly amongst young people and people of color, et cetera, is the sense that that doesn't happen, that the strong group doesn't share power, you know, that they're, they're va- they don't have the values, they don't have the character to, to set up a just conservative society. Do you, where do you see that happening and what would help? Well, you know, it's, this is, it, it, it's an important question. It's very, it's a, it's a very difficult question to answer across the uh, across the um, the divide of 
worldviews because because a you know I I I don't I don't want to speak for um, you know for for uh, for different minority groups. I'll just speak you know as a Jew. I'll try to understand this. Um, I I don't I don't um, I I don't think there are. Uh, look, I don't believe in a competition of, you know, uh, who, who suffered more. I think, I mean, j- just the thought of it makes me kind of ill. But um, but I think that if if you were to stage such a competition, I think the Jews would, you know, do reasonably well uh, in, you know, as a um, being able to make the case that they deserve the brownie for the, you know, the, you know, for, 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 being one of the most persecuted peoples, um, and I, 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 you know, I think that the idea that I that you know that I would spend my life embittered and angry and hostile and trying to damage others because of things that happened, um, you know, to my ancestors, or even you know, even things that I experienced. I mean, this, this just seems like a a wretched form of existence. And, you know, I mean, part of what I think um, di- distinguishes a, a, not just a conservative worldview, but, uh, but a, uh, in particular, a biblical worldview is that if you know the Bible well, even a little bit well, <laughs> then you understand that, um, that, that, our our world is not a world of instant justice. That's just not reality. I, I mean, the, the 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 Hebrew slaves are you know they're enslaved in Egypt for for uh, for centuries. Um, the, the the being being uh, not just enslaved, their children massacred, and uh, and and the, their 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 religion forbidden. And 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 what you know what. What are you supposed to say about this? That you know we were enslaved and massacred for centuries. Therefore, um, therefore, what? Therefore, uh, uh, I, I can't lead a good life. I can't improve things. I can't change my world for the better. A a, a religious worldview says that you know there, this this world is a world in which there is a great deal of. Suffering, suffering, hatred, killing, persecution, injustice. There's, there's, there's no end of it. And the question that you have is, what role are you going to play? And a, a religious person says, um, the role that I'm going to play is that I'm going to be, um, first of all, I'm going to be grateful for, for what good I can find. And second, a religious person thinks, my role is to try to understand what God would wish in terms of improvement, of, of betterment for, you know, for, for my people and for other peoples. And what can I do to be, um, to, 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 to play some kind of small role in bringing that about? I, th- I see that as a, a, a healthy, constructive life, which, um, w- which, I'm not saying that every religious person has a healthy, constructive attitude, of course, but a healthy, constructive life is possible within a Jewish biblical framework or a Christian biblical framework, even though those two things are not the same. And it becomes extremely difficult when you're a Marxist. 
because the Marxist view is is one that is fundamentally ungrateful. It's not just that it's skeptical about the past. It's ungrateful about the past. And so it sees the past as evil. And it is so optimistic about the future that, that, it, that it's absurd. I mean, it's, it's, it's just absurd to think that every group in history until today has oppressed uh, the weak and done good for the strong, but that you yourself are going to come to power and you're going to escape it. Thank you. That is really, really helpful. And I know from your work that that is such a key ingredient for you, that the reason that the kind of post-war liberalism can no longer hold is that the religious ethic that's formed the kind of Anglo-American conservative world, the kind of biblical command to care for the weak and the vulnerable and to welcome the stranger and to use your power with integrity um, and seek justice is, is no longer holding. So that part of your vision of a kind of healthy conservatism in which people flourish requires almost a religious framework. The other ingredient that I can see and has been a real theme in your work is this idea of nationalism, of the nation, of independent nations as kind of the the best way to organize society to create flourishing for humans. And I'd love you to unpack that for me a bit because, as you know, having been communicating around it, lots of people's reactions to nationalism are deeply negative. And um, your uh, binary that nationalism and imperialism or nationalism and colonialism are not, as I would have thought, colonialism is nationalism on steroids, but actually that they're opposites is really key. And I'd love to hear more about that. Sure. Let's let's begin with the definition. When I say nationalism, I'm talking about a, a, a principled political standpoint that sees the world as governed best when many nations uh, are able to chart their own independent course according to their own traditions and 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 their own interests okay so so um, this is not this is not a utopian argument I'm not claiming uh, that there's some way to bring you know to bring every single people on on earth to uh, to uh, uh, national independence and peace simultaneously, and that there's no trade-offs. There's no utopianism here. Uh, I think, in general, that human beings can be pretty crummy, and uh, they're no. And 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 that means that that they use every possible ideology you can come up with in order to do crummy things. So that so so there there are evil imperialists, imperialists, and there are evil nationalists. And they're evil, evil tribalists, and 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 you can keep going. So there's no utopian claim here. The claim is, um, is a, a, again a claim uh, drawn from from the Hebrew Bible, which is that as a general matter, um, the independence of a nation allows for a government that cares more about its people than. Um, than than you would have if the nation is being governed, uh, you know, by some, you know, Assyrian or Babylonian uh, or, or 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 Roman Empire, in which hundreds of different nations are are conquered and governed by force by some distant ruler. Okay, so if people, you know, care at all about democracy, then they should notice that there are no democratic empires in world history. That uh, that the moment that you have um, many many nations being governed by a particular 
uh, conquering nation. Um, that's that's always by force. It never develops into democracy. And the only place where something like democracy is capable of occurring, so far as we know empirically, thus far in history, the only place where we see it is in independent nations. Okay, again, I'm not I'm not saying that that you know that, that if you have an independent nation, that means the ruler is good to his people. It doesn't. But the biblical insistence that uh, that uh, each nation have borders, uh, that, that, that the Jewish people, even though supposedly, you know, Moses is talking to God, creator of heaven and earth and, and getting the best law, but still he's told that his people have to have borders. They're not allowed to conquer the neighboring peoples. And, and moreover, uh, they have to have a king and a king and a prophet who are from their own people. This is not saying that there are no good kings or prophets in other people, but but it's like this principle that comes from Scripture. It doesn't come from gr- Greek thought or Roman thought. It comes from the Bible, that uh, that the freedom of a nation is based on having your own people ruling, because those people are are most likely to be able to uh, to sympathize uh, and to to uh, to care for justice. Um, that that principle of national freedom is uh, is what then becomes the basis in uh, in England and other Western countries for the development of a, um, a, a of of a government that is not only uh, explicitly responsible to all of its people, but also that seeks uh, systematic representation from all of its people. This is only possible in. Uh, in a single nation where the people of that nation feel sufficient mutual loyalty, sufficient uh, trust to to be able to allow uh, a system in which votes are taken and peaceful transitions of power are allowed. Um, so, you know, I th- th- there is no way to separate uh, democracy from, uh, from from nationalism, from independent nations. It really came alive for me in your argument, and I think it's in your In Praise of Nationalism book, that um, that there are two different responses to the Holocaust. Could you unpack for me why you think the kind of European Union and Israel are these two representative responses to the Holocaust? Because very counterintuitive, but very illuminating. Sure, yes. So um, I, I mentioned David Ben-Gurion and, and the, 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 the labor movement that earlier that uh, was responsible for for the political establishment of Israel, and um, and many many liberals uh, have a, a great deal of criticism, even you know disdain or horror for Ben Gurion and and the Israeli labor movement because they um, because they were so focused on uh, empowerment on the. Uh, the, um, the the amassing, the building up, and the the wielding of political power uh, by uh, the the Jews as a people, uh, which had been disempowered for a very very long time. Now, when when you um, look at the way that Holocaust is discussed in Europe and in Israel, you're immediately struck by the fact that that you know that many many Europeans. Philosophers and political leaders um, talk about the Holocaust as though the European Union could be the answer to the Holocaust. Like, what are we going to? How do we prevent ever happening? Have ever happening? Having this happen again? 
and and it's it's interesting because in Israel, um, also politics is is uh, was from the founding of the state about how can we make sure this never happens again, and Ben Gurion's answer and the labor Zionist answer was the way we will prevent this from ever happening again is by making sure that uh, that. Uh, that every Jew knows how to shoot, that there is a Jewish army, that there is a Jewish diplomatic corps, that we have, we, that, that we engage in political alliances with, uh, with, uh, with other nations. So something, God forbid, is going wrong. We can do everything that we can in order to uh, politically or, or, or militarily uh, uh, bring about a cessation of, of the persecution. So that's, that's, that's one lesson of the Holocaust. That's the Israeli lesson, Ben-Gurion's lesson of the Holocaust. The, what, what did we learn from the Holocaust? Ben-Gurion would say that, that, that being so weak that you can't defend your own children is sinful. Okay, now, and this is almost the mirror image of a view that says, how do we prevent the Holocaust from have, ever happening again? Well, the reason that it happened Okay, and this is you know this is not an unreasonable proposal. So people, liberals or Marxists, will say, well, the reason that it happened is because of national independence. Is because the Germans had national independence, so they were able to decide for themselves to elect uh, 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 evil doers, evil mongers, um, and uh, and then they used their independence in order to to uh, to. Uh, uh, to, to persecute and, and, and to, to slaughter millions and to wage war and, and, and kill many millions more. So that's a reasonable observation, but it's reasonable until, until you say, okay, so what's our answer as the European Union? And the answer is, well, we're going to remove political power from all of the nations, and we're going to uh, uh, send it up, to, we're going to kick political power military, economic, political, and diplomatic power upstairs to what? To a, an international body, which is another group of people wielding power in the name of empire. Okay, and, and uh, the, the, look, there have been people making this argument since antiquity. I mean, when you dig, when you dig in the sands in the Middle East, what you, what you find is you, you find these archives of ancient imperial governments where they explain why they are conquering the entire world. And the answer is that they want to bring peace and, that they want to bring peace and economic prosperity to, to the four corners of the, the earth. That, that, that's what the Babylonians thought that their God was sending them to do. That's what the Assyrians thought their God was sending them to do. And now we have the European Union saying exactly the same thing. The Holocaust proves that there shouldn't be any independent nations. People should not care for their own children. We'll care for their children, and you should all trust us that, that we'll care for your children better than you will. Yoram Hazoni, sadly, we are out of time. Thank you so much for talking to me on The Sacred. Well, um, Yoram seems like a really uh, thoughtful guy. Again and again, um, both in the interview and in his writing, he's really clear. There's lots that we don't know, that he doesn't know, that he doesn't have a kind of utopian proposal that he thinks is going to fix everything. Um, Which I just found quite refreshing. I was quite nervous going into this interview, actually, because it's... um, quite dense political philosophy and all some of his writing and all of the 
all of the definitions and the terms um, are used differently by different people in different spaces. So it's actually quite hard to fight your way through to understand um, what someone is arguing for. But I did, after talking to him, get this really clear sense of his definition of conservatism being basically about what we pass down, um, a sense of interconnectedness between generations um, and that question of what do we owe each other um, being through time as well as to those currently living and around us. And it really chimed actually with a lot of conversations I hear in progressive spaces about ancestors. They, he, used, he used the phrase ancestors and really reflected on his ancestors such a lot. And I know for a lot of people of colour and a lot of people um, coming from indigenous communities, there's been this huge uptick in interest in in ancestors and what we've received from the past. And it's an, another example of where I often hear parallel conversations happening on the left and the right for want of less, you know, for shorthand. Parallel conversations happening in different tribes, often sometimes with the exact same language, but an assumption that, um, yeah, uh, that these things are wildly different, that uh, often these tribes have got more in common than um, than they necessarily know. I I really it really struck with me his thing about some children are just loyalists. Not least because we had a chat about it with our production team afterwards, and we're talking about the different roles that we play in our own families, um, and uh, how again I often think this how much temperament is just shot through, not just our um, the way the roles we play in our families, but in the political positions that we find ourselves drawn to. There's been big studies showing that some people just have much high, higher tolerance for change and they tend to lean progressive and some people have a much higher appetite for stability and they tend to lean conservative. And this idea that, um, you know, some children are loyalists, that some people feel a really strong moral intuition about kind of receiving what's been passed on from their parents and maintaining it, um, if you think about Jonathan Haidt's work on moral taste buds, that actually we do have uh, these different intuitive values, these moral and political intuitions, this like felt sense of what's important in the world. And we're quite different on those things. Um, but lots of that happens kind of subconsciously, semi-consciously. And it's very easy to think that other people's intuitions are obviously wrong and obviously wrong to them. I thought that was coming to mind as I was thinking about kind of loyalists within families, loyalists within nations, was, even for me, sounds like a sort of very fence city one. But whether actually we we need each other, that as in a family, probably the person saying, look, let's continue the legacy that our parents left us and this, the child saying, no, you know, most of this needs to go to the tip. Um, maybe need each other. That there's something dynamic in that conversation, in in that relationship. That it may be that those within a community or a nation wanting to push us forward, wanting to say there's better ahead, wanting to say, kind of let's innovate, let's build can risk tearing too much down, can risk kind of hubris or utopianism about what's possible when they need 
the loyalists on the conservatives to say, look, what do we need to restore? What do we need to maintain? What do we need to carry forward? What are the gifts that we've received from the past? Um, but that the conservatives and the those who who want to um, to pass down and maintain need those who can see actually the faults in the past or the sins in the past um, and help them not get stuck in the past and not be backward looking, but build a better future. Um, whether there's any way we can frame this, and this is probably just my not wanting to demonize anybody, but there's any way we can frame the relationship between those two temperaments, those two attitudes to the past and the future as somehow dynamic, as somehow a healthy conversation that we need, rather than one needs to be right and one needs to be wrong and one needs to win and one needs to lose because that feels like it is um, not leading us in good directions. I loved how he spoke to a sense of his religious, I, I called it a conversion, but I guess it was more like a deepening or a um, discovery of his pre-existing Jewish identity with deeping religious practice um, of homecoming. And uh, I have lots of friends who I talk about these things with, lots of whom are not religious themselves or um, are sort of spiritually interested in open, but I was having a conversation with some of them um, a few months ago around this language of God and the difficulty of talking about God and whether that language is even useful and what alternative languages might be and are various and very different intuitions around that thing. And someone said to me, you know, what does God feel like for you? And I said, God feels like home. And so um, it was just very emotionally resonant for me. Um, and I wonder again if there's a temperament thing in there. Um, a previous guest, David Goodhart, talked about somewheres and anywheres you know, those who actually feel a strong need for home, maybe, who who see strong value in rooting and in um, the local and in small networks of interconnected solidarity. And for those who do feel more like individuals, for better or worse, who feel more mobile and global um, and uh, that he calls them anywheres, um, and whether we could have more compassion on each other that those who have a strong need for roots and home could be less disparaging of those who don't, even as we might wonder why, and those who feel more global and um, less nationally orientated or less locally oriented could try and be less disparaging about <laughs> those who are. Um, gosh, I'm sounding ever so uh, motherhood and apple pie today. Um, and I think the final thing I want to say is just we have um, a kind of Yoram's polar opposite on this series of the podcast, a guy called Jared Yates Sexton, um, which was very helpful for me to talk to someone who is kind of uh, two people who have very different visions of what the life, uh, a good life looks like, a good society looks like, who are suspicious of the opposite thing. Um, And many of you may know exactly what you think about these things, but I don't actually. The more I listen to people with their visions of the world and the good life, the more I feel a sense of epistemic humility and how complex the world is <laughs> and our systems and our nations and our politics and how impossible it is for 
any one person or any one group to hold that complexity in our heads. Um, and maybe that is, um, maybe that's bottling it. <laughs> maybe I'm just um, giving up on the noble enlightenment project of applying my reason to understand the world and so know how we could fix it. Um, but I'm more and more drawn personally to this sense of, okay, I don't need to understand this all. This is not a council of despair, actually. It's a council of what is the work that I can do to seek justice and to love mercy. And in my case, to walk humbly with God. What is the what is the action in my small part of this planet I can take to be loving my neighbour and to be um, seeking to grow in freedom? Um but that doesn't mean I'm not going to keep listening to people with grand visions and grand analyses of the world because I find it fascinating. And I hope you do too. You have been listening to an episode of The Sacred Podcast with Yoram Hazoni. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield and I would love to hear from you. All our social channels are in the show notes. Also, there'll be a transcription available shortly after the episode publishes. If you'd find that helpful, if you want to go back and reference anything or indeed quote us on social media, we love it when you share and rate and review the podcast, of course. So please, please do keep doing that. Many thanks to our team, Lizzie Harvey, Daniel Turner and Drew Hawley. The Sacred is a project of the Think Tank Theos and you can find all about it at theosthinktank.co.uk. Mm-hmm.